Hello, good morning everyone. My name is Keely Scott and I'm the Head of Conferences at the Royal Aeronautical Society. I'm delighted to welcome you all to our webinar today on mental well-being and human performance. I hope everyone's keeping safe and well. Uh, we've had an amazing response to this webinar. Over 500 people have registered um, and it's great to see that so many of you have been able to join us today. Um, so today's webinar is covering the new EASTA regulation and also well-being, stress coping and resilience. But we also hope it will give you an insight into our mental well-being conference, um, which was due to take place um, in May this year, but due to coronavirus has now been rescheduled to the 27th of April 2021. So that's a date for your diaries. Before we get started, just a few housekeeping points. Uh, so for those of you who aren't familiar with this webinar platform, um, you will see on the right hand side of your screen a panel and you can minimise or maximise that by clicking on that little orange arrow at the top. Um, audience members have been muted, this is just to allow ease of the audio throughout the presentations, but you can still submit questions to us and you can submit them in the question box. Um, so you'll see um, a little arrow and the word questions. If you click on there, a drop down will appear and you'll be able to write your questions in there and submit them. We just ask if your question is for a particular speaker, if you could put their name in there, that would be very helpful. We'll make sure we direct that to the uh, correct person and we'll try and answer as many of your questions as possible at the end. Um, the webinar is being recorded um, and we'll be sending the link out to you all being well um, in the days following the webinar. So now I'd like to introduce our speakers for today. I'd like to welcome Mark Atherton, first of all. So Mark is a consultant psychologist and also a member of the Royal Aeronautical Society. He's worked across a wide range of areas encompassing psychological assessment, training systems design, personnel selection, culture change and stress management. Mark founded and chairs the Royal Aeronautical Society annual Mental Health and Wellbeing Conference, which I mentioned earlier. And he's also involved in the Society's Human Factors Specialist Group, looking at the concept of a wellbeing culture in civil aviation. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Joan Cahill. Joan is a research fellow and principal investigator at the Centre for Innovation in Human Systems at the School of Psychology, Trinity College in Dublin. Joan's research is at the nexus of people, information technology and process delivery and focuses on technology-based supports and interventions in aviation, healthcare and transport. Joan's aviation research spans topics such as teamwork, performance management, work-related stress, and pilot health and well-being. Welcome, Joan. Thank you. And last but not least, I'd like to introduce Captain Paul Cullen. Paul has been an airline pilot for over 22 years and has accumulated over 14,000 hours of flying. Paul is an AFALPA accredited air accident investigator and previously held the position of Director of Safety and Technical with the Irish Airline Pilots Association. Paul has been a research associate, again, at the Centre for Innovative Human Systems at the School of Psychology at Trinity College, Dublin. Welcome to you, Paul. Morning, Keely. Thank you very much. Okay, brilliant. So uh, without further delay, let's um, start the presentations. I'd like to hand over to Mark Atherton, um, who will deliver our first presentation. Mark, over to you. Okay. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for the introduction and administration, Keeley. Uh, very well done, uh, much appreciated. Um, and thanks everybody for joining us. Um, over 500 people have registered for the webinar today, which to me says that this topic is something which is very relevant. Um, certainly the current situation has made it, I would argue, more relevant um, people are furloughed, uh, sitting at home, worried, stressed, anxious about the future. Um, and uh, whilst this conference uh, webinar was intended to take place before coronavirus, uh, the lessons and hopefully uh, the points raised today will still be valid, um, if not more so. This is uh, the fifth in a series of conferences 
that were founded in the aftermath of the German Wings tragedy. Um, and uh, today I'm uh, doing a presentation on behalf of myself uh, and Dr. Stuart Mitchell of the UK Civil Aviation Authority. Uh, this presentation and the concept for the conference came out of some discussions between uh, Dr. Mitchell and myself around um, the regulation, the EASA regulation, um, which came out of the investigation into German wings and where that put us and what opportunity it offered us to move into the future. So the conference title and the title of this framing presentation is Moving Beyond Regulatory Compliance. So without further ado, could I have the next slide, please, Keely? Because this is being done in conjunction with uh, Dr. Mitchell, a couple of disclosure statements, I shan't read them, um, other than to say that the views expressed uh, in the presentation um, are not the views uh, or policy of the UK CAA or the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, they are personal views um, and the views expressed in this talk are mine. Um, however, uh, in order to make that clear, we have the disclosure statements um, if uh, they are of any value. So thank you. Next slide, please, Keely. The current situation. Um, where are we today, uh, excluding coronavirus? Um, Post-German wings, EASA formulated their response uh, through a special working group um, looking at the implications. And as a result of that, uh, they produced some new regulations relating to the mental well-being of aircrew. Um, the document is hopefully widely circulated, uh, the regulation, and people are well familiar and well acquainted with its content. A quick summary of where we are with regards to the EASA rule um, and its mandatory implementation in August of this year um, as a compliance requirement for AOC, uh, Air Operator Certificate Holders in Europe. The rule has a number of major components. Um, three of the medical components have already been implemented and they're listed on the screen and hopefully major AOCs and others um, are already uh, acquainted with and have implemented those um, requirements. Um, AME training, uh, enhanced psychiatric assessment at class one medical and drug and alcohol screening at the initial class one medical. Um, the remaining components are well known by now, hopefully to the key stakeholders in the industry. And there are three of them uh, overarching. Um, a psychological assessment for all aircrew before line flying as part of the selection process. Um, the implementation of a pilot peer support program uh, for all uh, AOCs and the operator drug and alcohol policy testing, um, including, of course, the uh, ramp testing uh, regulations. The three major remaining components are the ones which are still outstanding for compliance implementation by August of this year. Um, they are challenging, but they are achievable. The UK CAA uh, is developing guidance on how to implement these requirements in the UK, and the EASA have published information and held workshops on the components of the rule for all carriers subject to their oversight. So that's where we are. That is the outcome of um, the German Wings tragedy. And in a sense, this is a safety one response to a specific event. Um, the purpose of the conference and of this presentation was to look beyond that particular approach and to see where we go next. Next slide, please, Keely. In the wider context, 
what's come out of German wings and the subsequent investigations in the ASA rule is that as an industry, we are very good, in fact, excellent at monitoring and maintaining our aircraft and infrastructure using an evidence-based approach to safety and risk management. Unfortunately, what German wings showed us is that we historically have done less well with our human assets to the extent that um, Aon Insurance in 2016 from their aviation practice actually identified a simple issue from their perspective that now the primary risk factor for the insurance carriers is seen to be the human factor. Um, German Wings, a tragic event, um, came as a real shock to the system and the insurance industry is paying very heavily and as such they would, I presume, I, my understanding is they would like very much to have risk of the human factor mitigated. Uh, it, they would not wish to see another uh, German wings if there is a way in which that could be um, mitigated to the greatest extent possible. It became clear that we as an industry knew very little about the mental well-being state of our aircrew and other professional groups to various degrees, air traffic control officers, engineers, cabin staff, and how that might affect their performance and the implications for safety. And as an industry, monitoring and mitigating risk to enhance safety and performance is integral to what we do. Um, so how do we look to operate our safety management systems given that? Next slide, please, Keely. Mature safety management systems are driven by a safety analysis. Um, on the right-hand side, there are three key components, reactive, predictive, proactive. Reactive is to an extent what's happened with the response to German wings. Uh, there was a horrific incident, uh, great loss of life. The industry reacted and has created a policy through EASA to look to mitigate that risk in the future. The safety analysis moves within the industry from reactive through predictive into proactive. Um, in principle, a safety one to safety two move. The analysis feeds into our safety management systems and it is our safety management systems that make the industry the uh, the, the industry that it is in terms of maintaining a safe and efficient uh, sector for both the stakeholders and for the traveling public. Um, it begs a question for me, um, where are we with the risk analysis of mental health and well-being post-German wings? We understand the specifics of the Andre Lubitz situation and where there were failures um, in the monitoring and oversight of his mental health and well-being which sadly led to the outcome that we're all too familiar with next question next slide please uh, keely if we look at mental well-being as a risk component we have to ask two questions in terms of a safety management system. What do we currently know and what would we like to know? Um, on the left, using a very simple traffic light uh, system um, is what I would argue we know about the current state of the mental health and well-being of the professionals that make our industry the global success that it is. We know very little, we have very little data uh, we have general population figures. Some of you may have heard uh, figures thrown around like a lifetime risk of one in four to one in six for a common mental health uh, issue. Um, generally, you know, between one in four and one in six people in the general population will have a mental health issue at some point in their life. And we have very limited uh, analysis of whether that statistic is relevant to the 
populations within aviation, pilots, air traffic controllers, engineers, uh, cabin crew. Um, the monitoring of the mental health and well-being of our, of our professionals is um, done on a very uh, minimal basis currently. Uh, and the mitigation uh, approaches um, tend to be reactive and limited. And uh, Joan and Paul in the subsequent presentation will touch on this, but we, we end up in a situation where in terms of the current knowledge state, if we look at mental well-being as a risk uh, concept, um, we are not where we would like to be, I would argue. In the ideal world, uh, we should be moving over into the diagonal on the right-hand side, uh, and we should be in a position to um, turn the boxes, the rectangular boxes, green. We should be in a position where we have, to the greatest extent possible, a known and mitigated risk for the mental health and well-being of all of our professionals in order to ensure that we have a safe and efficient um, civil aviation sector to serve uh, the traveling public and to serve its other functions of connecting people around the world. Next slide, please, Keely. It's not all bad news, and I have to thank Dr. Mitchell and the CAA for this slide. There are already barriers to a, uh, avoiding another German wings, and people are more aware of that particular risk. Um, this particular diagram down the left-hand side shows factors which can feed into, uh, particularly in this case, a pilot's mental health and well-being. Um, However much pressure is brought to bear between that and um, an affected pilot operating a flight, there are a number of steps. Um, the diagram shows five. Uh, these are hurdles which people, uh, pilots would need to bypass in order to be in the cockpit in a state which would be potentially detrimental to the safe operation of the aircraft. So, we are aware of this. This is a very good system. It works well. The evidence of the infrequent occurrence of the kind of event uh, that German Wings represented in our global industry would suggest that this system works fairly well the vast majority of the time. So it's not really what Nicholas Tallard calls the black swan events, the outliers that are likely to be the major problem. Um, they are so overt that one of those five stages will generally catch them. It's very much like Jim Reason's uh, Swiss cheese model of risk. Um, in order for somebody at the extreme end to go through all five of those is a very, very low probability occurrence. Next slide, please, Keely. I have uh, Dr. Mitchell to thank for this slide. Um, we look at the factors that affect or can affect an individual's mental health and well-being. They're not static. They change as you move through your life and you, your career. So we need to look at uh, issues around where in your career are you? Um, being early in your career and having two young children at home while you're doing lots of international flights poses a significantly different uh, stress um, than somebody later in their career where the children are grown, are at university, and you have been flying for 20 years. Um, we need to look at where to target resources um, in your career, um, in the medical department, through your peers um, in the airline? Uh, who is best suited to help support you and help give you information? And we need to look at interventions. We need to look at monitoring. How do we know an intervention needs to take place? Um, we need to look at assessment. Um, understanding the situation allows us to tailor interventions 
we need to look at what tools, counselling, peer support um, uh, programmes can offer at different points. And we need to look, obviously, at how these relate to the um, aeromedical aspects of your licences. Um, because at the end of the day, your licence is signed off by an aeromedical examiner. So the focal point has to be the medical. How does this all come together to produce a situation where we can provide uh, support to our professionals in order to maintain high levels of mental health and well-being, it, such that these people can operate at optimum performance levels and contribute positively to the safety culture of the airlines. Next slide, please, Keely. So if we look at that and say, who owns and manages the risk? This is a question. Um, the answer is not yet clear. And this is something that uh, hopefully we can, as an industry, begin to question. Whoever owns the risk, there are adverse impacts um, of health and life events on individuals and families. These are uncontrolled risks outside of work, but they can come into the workplace. And when they do, they can affect operational performance. They certainly change the operational risk profile. Um, they can impact uh, the duty of care obligation on employers uh, with regards to their staff. Uh, they can impact the third party liability risk. Um, this is to do with how much you do to mitigate the risk. One of the talks at the conference uh, would have been and will be next year from Gerard Fallin, QC, a leading risk and liability analyst. And this is something that is very relevant. Um, you mitigate the risk by doing what you know is possible, not what you think is the minimum compliance requirement. Um, in that gap uh, lies potential liability. Uh, and what are the implications of this concept um, as we shift from a safety one to a safety two operational risk model, going from reactive to proactive. Uh, there are clearly a number of issues that need to be addressed here. And hopefully, uh, as an industry, we can move towards that. Next slide, please, Keely. So what could close the gap? Well, based on the concept of a mental well-being culture, uh, with mental well-being as a risk item, what could we do? Adopt a safety two approach to mental well-being. Look at the issues and look at what works well and build on that. Develop appropriate, keyword, appropriate monitoring approaches at the individual, fleet and sector level. Um, we're blind at the moment to a great extent. We need insight. Um, we need to develop effective mitigation approaches at the individual and the organizational level, and we need to foster a well-being culture akin to the just culture policy in the industry. We need to share expertise across key stakeholder groups to coordinate responses. Um, air traffic control knows a great deal about team performance, um, which is not part of the core of knowledge within the piloting community, for example. And we need to combine academic research and practical expertise to close the gap, um, to move towards the all green red traffic light situation. Next slide, please, Keely. Is there any appetite for doing this? Um, I would argue yes. Um, the Flight Safety Foundation uh, published a document about 10 days ago and you know, a quick note, uh, Paul Cullen, Joan Carhill and myself were all contributing authors to this document. It's a, uh, an aviation professional's well-being guide. Uh, it is a practical document uh, issued in response to the coronavirus situation to help professionals in aviation maintain high levels of well-being. Um, is there any interest? One of the team at EASA has posted the document on one of their safety uh, websites. 
and it had over 20,000 hits in four days. Uh, it would suggest that there was a real recognition that uh, well-being is important, not only for the individual, but also for the organization in terms of, of performance and safety. Well-being is so important, the British government in 2010-2011 actually spent a huge amount of money looking at whether it was worth fostering well-being in the population as a matter of policy. Um, and Sir Gus O'Donnell, head of the UK Civil Service, the ultimate Sir Humphrey, for those of you who know Yes Minister, came out with a, a line which I still think is relevant, talking about well-being. He said, if you treasure it, measure it. Well-being is important. Well-being keeps people safe and keeps people performing at very high levels. Next slide, please, Keely. So summary, uh, the EASA rule comes into force later this year and we all in the industry have to comply with it. We have to have solutions to the uh, psychological assessment, the peer support and the drug and alcohol testing requirements. But that's a safety one response to the German wings tragedy. As the industry moves forward, and we're not quite sure where that will end up, given the impact of coronavirus um, on the industry, uh, the role of the professionals who make it up will become more critical to having a safe, high-performance sector. People will be under more pressure to perform at high levels for longer. And I would argue that as an industry, we should look to going beyond a minimum compliance approach with the EASA regulation and create a safety two type response, which proactively enhances the well-being of our of the individuals, the professionals in our industry, and enhance the safety performance um, of the sector as a whole. How do we make this happen is a good question. And that's the end of my presentation. Thank you for listening. I will now hand over to Captain Paul Cullen. Paul, over to you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society for giving us the opportunity to speak this morning uh, for myself and Joan and the rest of the team back in Dublin. We're also joined uh, in Dublin by Dr. Keith Gaynor, Professor Simon Wilson and Sohee Anwar. Uh, I'd also like to start with a disclosure statement, as did Mark did. Uh, what I'm going to talk about, some of it is our views. However, the vast majority of what I'm going to talk about today is not the views of our research team, but the views of over 1,000 airline pilots across the world uh, with whom we engaged. We're not gonna talk about what we think is going on. We're gonna talk about what these 1,000 pilots across the world have told us is going on. Next slide, please, Keely. I wanna start by talking about risk and hazard and threats. Uh, aviation, as we know, is ultra safe. However, it is an inherently risky business. So how have we got to the stage of ultra safety when there's so much risk around? We go to great lengths in aviation to identify hazards. We assess the risk and we mitigate the risks with suitable defenses. The size of the defense will be in direct proportion to the size of the threat. However, the most dangerous threats in aviation and in life are those that we're not aware of, or those threats that we are aware of, but for whatever reason assume they either don't apply to us or we falsely assume that we've mitigated adequately. Next slide, please. In aviation, we manage or mitigate risk by a combination of preventative and reactive risk management. We try to prevent an incident from happening in the first place and yet assume that it may still happen. And if it does happen, we try to ensure that there's controls or barriers in place to minimize the impact of the, or the severity of the incident. If we think of how our industry has responded to uh, CFIT, control flight into terrain incidents over the years, it's a very good example. Back in the 1950s, 1960s, airplanes were crashing into the ground at an alarming rate. However, we didn't bulldoze the mountains, nor did we forbid pilots to fly into mountainous regions. What we did was we mitigated the risk. We gave the pilots maps. On those maps, we charted the mountains so the pilots knew where the mountains were. However, that still wasn't enough. We needed to make sure that those pilots knew where they were in relation to the mountains or the treks. 
So therefore, we beefed up the navigation systems on the aircraft. However, that still wasn't enough. Pilots were still getting lost, even though they knew there were mountains out there, they didn't realize how close they were to the mountains. We introduced GPWS, ground proximity warning systems. This was a reactive system. This is what saved the pilots from hitting the ground when all else had failed. A similar approach is taken in general healthcare, where we don't just look at the treatment of illness, we look at promoting good, safe, uh, good health behaviors. When we prepare for a flight, we assess the weather, we assess NOTAMs, we assess the aircraft, we assess the environment that we're flying into. However, we need to do that with our people as well. We need to protect our most valuable assets. Next slide, please, Kelly. As part of the lived experience project, the research project that myself and Joan Cattle are involved in, we're trying to understand and measure the impact of work-related stress on pilot well-being, on the performance of pilots, and the ultimate impact on safety. We want to try and understand why is it that some pilots cope better than others when they're facing similar sources of stress? What is it that makes some pilots resilient while others are resilient, or while sorry, others are susceptible? And finally, we want to see how can we bring about change? What sort of solutions can we introduce for pilots and for the industry? Next slide, please, Kelly. I want to talk now about health well-being. Mark alluded to the biopsychosocial model of health as proposed by Engel. This model allows us to think of our health, three different strands of our health. We have the biological, which is our physical, the psychological, that's our mental health, and finally, our social health. None of these aspects of our health exist independently. They're all interdependent on one another. Our physical health is influenced by our sleep, our exercise, our diet. Our mental health is influenced by our attitude to life, how we manage stress and how we cope, and our sense of meaning and purpose in life. And finally, our social health. That's to do with our interpersonal relationships and our support network. Next slide, please, Kitty. In managing stress, people vary in how they cope. We all have different healthy behaviors. These influence our resilience to stress. However, sometimes some of the coping mechanisms that we adopt are not in our best interest. These are maladaptive coping techniques. However, common stress coping techniques can include exercise, practice of relaxation techniques, and seeking social support from our friends or family. So how did we go about looking at pilot well-being? Next slide, please, Kelly. Since 2015, actually since before the German Wings tragedy, we've been looking at this. We started with a series of semi-structured informal interviews with over 100 pilots. We followed this up with a series of workshops with 33 pilots uh, partake in our workshops. And then we have interviewed and held workshops with industry stakeholders. The most recent part of our research involved an anonymous online health questionnaire that was filled out by over 1,000 pilots across the world. As you're probably aware, several studies have been done on pilots up until now. They've measured issues such as depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, burnout, disengagement, and emotional exhaustion. We looked at all six of those health issues as well. And the results that we got were remarkably similar to what the other researchers got. However, we weren't only concerned in the levels of distress. We were equally concerned in the levels of resilience. We wanted to understand why it was that almost as many pilots that were suffering with mild clinical depression were also doing fine with no depressive symptoms whatsoever. So we looked at these two groups and we got some very interesting insights into what it was that caused one group to be resilient while the other was susceptible. We think of this as well-being one versus well-being two. Well-being one, a little bit like safety one, where you look at why things have gone wrong. In well-being two and safety two, we look at why is it that things go right. Next slide, please, Kitty. As part of our workshop, we discussed with the pilots different scenarios. We proposed six different scenarios of what may, might be going on right now with pilots flying. The largest group of pilots we proposed are those that are doing, they're doing well, they're coping mostly well. 
And the safety impact of these issues on pilots, sorry, these issues on safety is negligible. If the pilots do make any mistakes, they tend to self-correct. The second group, pilots are coping well, but sources of stress of the job might be having an impact on their physical health. This could be something like back issues or gastrointestinal issues, all of which were very common in the pilots to be surveyed. And once again, there was a minimal safety impact. Any mistakes were either self-corrected by the pilot or picked up by the other pilot. The third group, this was the most interesting group and possibly the group that gets least attention at the moment. These pilots are experiencing difficulties, but they're mostly coping well. However, they are making significant errors in their job. And for the most part, they've been picked up by the other pilot. The fourth group are pilots who are coping, but it may have long-term impacts on their health. That could be their social health, it could be that their marriages or their relationship with their children are suffering, or maybe their, their health, their, they have an underlying health concern that is not really causing an issue yet, but will be long-term. And once again, that doesn't have a direct safety impact. The fifth group are pilots who are not coping and perhaps might lose their license or have to go on long-term sick leave. And the fact that they're removed from the cockpit, obviously there's no safety impact. The sixth and the final uh, scenario were the extreme cases. These are the highly catastrophic, but equally highly rare events, the likes of German wings, where there's a potential for a serious incident or a fatal accident. These are the type of issues that we feel have triggered the response from EASA. Exceptionally rare, but exceptionally or highly catastrophic events. And where we feel the real focus needs to be is on scenario three. And we'll discuss that later on, particularly Joan will discuss that on her half of the presentation. Next slide, please, Keely. So we wanted to understand what were these sources of work-related stress in particular that were causing pilots uh, problems. The most common one reported by pilots was irregular hours, followed by antisocial hours, followed next by the length of the duties, and then difficulty accessing food, the changing nature of the job, inflexible annual leave, lack of engagement between pilots and management, time away from home, the sedentary nature of the job, and roster uncertainty. There's one thing that almost all of those sources of stress have in common, and it's that they're here to stay. A little bit like the mountains that we spoke about at the start of the presentation, there's not a whole lot we can do about many of those sources of stress. Unfortunately, it's a 24-7 industry we work in, so we're going to have to work irregular hours. We're going to have to work antisocial hours. We're going to have to work long duties. And unless they put a canteen into the airplane, fresh food is, it will continue to be an issue for pilots. We asked the pilots in our survey, what well-being issues did they suffer from that they felt were either caused or exacerbated by their job? The most common, 81% of pilots reported sleep difficulties. 73% of pilots reported musculoskeletal issues, such as back problems. 58% reported digestive problems. And almost 50% reported loneliness, with 42% reporting marital discord. 37% reported psychological distress. 32% respiratory issues. And 14% reported cardiovascular issues. Interestingly, several years ago, cardiovascular disease was the most common cause for loss of license in pilots. Now only 14% of pilots report it. Next slide, please, Keely. Next slide, please, Keely. One thing that stood out from our results was that not all pilots are suffering. As I said, almost half of the pilots are doing fine. However, nearly 60% of pilots reported using coping mechanisms to manage the work-related stress and its impact on their well-being. And what was very encouraging in our results was that pilots using coping mechanisms were found to have much lower depressive, uh, depression severity levels than those who weren't using coping techniques. Next slide, please, Keely. Of over 1,000 pilots surveyed, 
those pilots with the lower depression severity scores were the ones who exercised regularly. They were the ones that had good sleep. They were the ones that had a good diet. They were also the ones who reported talking with family and friends and with colleagues. They talked about their stress. They deliberately took uh, steps to relax. And many of them used professional supports. Next slide, please. Although all of our findings were recorded before <laughs> coronavirus, much of the findings are relevant now more than ever. We've got a unique insight into what it is that's allowing much of the world's pilot population to remain resilient when facing stress. Once coronavirus arrived, we decided that we were in a unique position with a unique data set that we could offer help to the world's pilots. We published a document called Turbulent Times. There is a link to the document at the end of the presentation. And in this document, we used a lot of our findings with practical tips to suggest the pilots how they can cope, how they can improve their resilience and how they can manage their stress. On foot of publishing this document, we were invited by the Flight Safety Foundation to join a team consisting of subject matter experts from the Flight Safety Foundation, from EASA, Eurocontrol, the Royal Aeronautics Society, the European Association of Aviation Psychologists, the European Pilot Peer Support Initiative, and the UK Flight Safety Committee to come together and put together a document. And that's the Aviation Professionals Guide to Wellbeing that Mark referred to earlier on. So at this point, I'm gonna now hand over to my colleague, Dr. Joan Cahill. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Mark. We might just move to the next slide, please. So um, to pick up on some of the points that uh, Paul and Mark mentioned, our research developed an evidence base to present a case for the need for resilience for both pilots and aviation professionals. So our research collects evidence around the pre-COVID situation. As we know, the landscape has changed quite fundamentally, and this is both for pilots and aviation professionals and for people working in other occupations. The Flight Safety Foundation um, have raised three operational scenarios that we must consider in relation to COVID. These include aviation professionals currently in work in different circumstances, aviation professionals who are off work and the supports that are required for them, and aviation professionals going back to work. And the document that Paul mentions really raises awareness as to the requirements to develop resilience for all aviation professionals who are moving between each of these three scenarios. We as researchers would argue that there is a need for a preventative approach. There is a risk that in focusing simply later at going back to work and what is required, not enough will be done now to deal with and prevent a worsening of well-being and mental health issues for aviation professionals. So this is a case really that our research makes. Um, and I'm going to take you through a little bit more around this case for the need for resilience. Next slide, please. So resilience, I think, is a term that we are becoming increasingly more aware of. It's defined as the demonstration of positive adaption in the face of significant adversity. And really, it is a process and a response as opposed to a trait or something that someone innately has. The Flight Safety Foundation have been redescribing, I suppose, resilience as a well-being journey. And the diagram on the right of the screen is this well-being journey that we're going to take you through. Next slide, please. So as Paul mentions, resilience and adapting and coping starts with self-awareness. So self-awareness is all around the me. So we must understand that there is a need for resilience and also accept that this is something that we are proactively going to engage with. Following from this, we need to actually address our well-being. Paul has presented the biopsychosocial model. In terms of the document that we've worked at with the Flight Safety Foundation, this has been refigured in terms of the body, 
the mind and the social. So these are the three pillars equivalent to the biopsychosocial. We know that we are relational beings and our well-being impacts on the well-being of others. Um, and also our well-being um, is affected by how we participate with others, how we get support from others, and indeed how we give support to others. So one of the things to, to, to understand, I suppose, is that we need to move from looking at our, all well, our own well-being to moving to situating our well-being in a more broader social context. And this includes our family and friends, the community and our work. Next slide, please. So what we would really like to encourage people is to engage in certain well-being behaviours. Now, in the document, there are seven behaviours described. These very much link to the evidence base that we have established through our field research with pilots. Um, if you actually go to the document, you will see particular tips as to managing these, these well-being behaviours. I should note that these behaviours happen in a social context. So in some sense, we may look at activities for ourselves and things that we enjoy and get purpose out of. But when we look at, say, physical exercise, stress management and diet, these are things that we can manage in the company of others. Next slide, please. So well-being is a process and it's something that needs to be maintained and we can maintain it by using various different tools. And the idea is that we become aware of where we are at and what we are doing. Um, and at different points in time, even through the course of the day, we can be in the green, we can be doing well. Um, and then things can change. And the whole point is not to become complacent about our well-being, it's to maintain it and actively work on it. So next slide, please. So let's just look at well-being in more, in more detail. Um, in the actual document, we pose three questions, and they're three interrelated questions. And I think if you were to look at them and look at those little sound clouds, you will see that these are these are like conversations we're, we're having with our family, with our friends, with our work colleagues. So the first question is, how am I feeling? And this is about our moods and our emotional states. The second question, how am I coping? So this relates to, well, what am I doing? Not just how am I feeling, but what am I doing about this? And the third question is, what can I do for myself and for others, linking to that relational sense in which we exist in a world that includes both ourselves, our community, our family, our work colleagues. Next slide, please. So in our research, we are looking at self-assessment and well-being managed across the three pillars of well-being, the biopsychosocial. So you'll see that in this table. Um, and these link to what is in the, this well-being document, those seven behaviours, um, and very much managing it in terms of that social context that I described. So really what we need to ask ourselves, and even to use colour as a framing device, you know, how are we, how are we doing? What am I currently doing? And what can I do to improve this, both for myself and for others? Am I in the green? If I am, well done, that's very positive, but let's continue with this. If I'm in the yellow, maybe there's some areas that I need to improve with. And if I'm in the red, well, this is a call to action. Things must change. I need now to focus on myself and developing my resilience. And I, I suppose this focus on the self is very important because if we look at the context of what is happening with COVID, we know that very much what is happening now and what is possible to happen resides within our own domain, within ourselves and our family and those social supports that we're able to maintain with social distancing rules. Our health service is in crisis. So from our research, we know that some pilots were using services and supports beyond what was provided within the airline in terms of, you know, the EAP function and peer support. Pilots were actually, you know, getting support from family members and also from their health services, both private and public. These are in crisis. The same supports aren't available. So there's a there, there's a need to dig deep. Now, digging deep and developing resilience, you know, for someone in an extreme situation and looking at those scenarios that Paul described, scenarios five and six, you know, there ne there needs to be supports beyond this wheel of support that you see in the image on the on the right. And um, next slide, please. 
So what can I do? Well, looking at those seven behaviors, you can actually say, well, well, what am I doing today, tomorrow and the next day? So this is very much dealing with the now and saying, well, what can I do? Next slide, please. So what we've presented is really an evidence base for a pilot well-being behavior model. So this includes the lived experience model, the sources of work-related stress and the health outcomes that Paul described. It also includes the impact model, which looks at the relationships between sources of work-related stress, well-being, performance and safety, and very much makes both um, a moral and a business and a safety case for addressing well-being. Then the model of coping, which is, you know, is, is certainly very positive. It looks at the predictors of good mental health and well-being, but also, you know, um, the strategies that are leading to more positive outcomes. Um, and I just would emphasize around this model of coping that really we are actually looking at well-being in that holistic sense. So coping is not coping in terms of management of mental health issues. It's management of our well our health and well-being in that biopsychosocial context. So considering the relationship between our, our biological pillar, our diet, our sleep, physical exercise, our psychological pillar, um, our attitudes, our mood, um, our, our need, our attitude to getting support, and our social pillar, whether we are actually obtaining supports and being supported and giving support within that social model. And then the last section is looking at behaviour change. And this is where we need to, to start to move. And this is where the evidence is developing. And this is really around motivations and enablers and barriers for change. And we are publishing some of this research over the course of the next few weeks. And really, it is quite positive in terms of what the case is for change and how this can be realized. So we might move to the next slide, please. So we have a, we are researchers and we have a research roadmap in terms of developing an evidence base for tools to support pilots, the airline and industry. And we are very happy to have this platform to, to showcase this evidence base, but really we see the, the, the problem of managing pilot well-being and supporting resilience um, and of course addressing mental health issues as a wicked problem and something that needs to be solved from a stakeholder perspective. So equally the tools need to link into those stakeholders. So we're looking at tools to support pilots, self-managing their health and well-being and promoting resilience while off duty, tools for pilots while on duty, which can include things like pre-flight checklists, which allow a pilot to risk assess themselves and contribute to the joint crew briefing, tools for um, employee assistance programs within the airline, developing an evidence base of how, our, how, how our, our pilot cohorts are currently doing, where the interventions need to go and for whom, um, all in a de-identified context, and we'll speak a little bit more that, that, about that later, tools for our medical examiners, and then, which is critical, is integrating well-being data within the safety management system and operational systems. So these are these fifth set of tools which allows for the proactive and management of well-being or the human factor as a risk. Um, next slide, please. So this is just um, some exciting pictures around some solutions that we have. We are prototyping tools with pilots as part of a research project. Um, and we know that many pilots are um, obviously have mobile phones, but they're also using um, some wearables like Garmin's. And there's a possibility to, you know, collect data through these tools and share them over mobile phones and for a pilot to self-manage their own health and well-being. Um, next slide, please. So our next steps involve developing a well-being community and a virtual challenge within the, the aviation community. So we are researchers and we learn from the evidence that we collect. We have collected evidence through the survey that Paul mentioned, through interviews and workshops and stakeholder engagement. But another opportunity is to develop a user community and where we work together in terms of collecting evidence and learning from each other. So um, this is in progress and we are with the, the right permissions and um, in place in terms of um, managing this with the appropriate ethics. Uh, we, we hope to advertise um, the launch of this community in, in the future. And as part of this, we'll develop a, a well-being game, which will actually look at, well, how are you using these seven different um, uh, coping strategies and what's making a difference? And to learn from this so we can refine um, our understanding of coping and resilience. 
Um, so this is in progress and we will share further information uh, about this in, in due course. Uh, next slide, please. So there's lots to look forward to in terms of the conference in 2021. We will be presenting our latest research and we hope to present an evidence base around, you know, solutions to support positive well-being for pilots. So well-being in, in the sense of that holistic, those three pillars. And we want to progress our research with the well-being community and progress really the stakeholder engagement that is really, um, you know, gathering momentum um, since COVID. And I suppose COVID um, I, there is obviously very challenging, but there has been some positives for pilots in terms of drawing attention to the need for proper supports in terms of resilience. Now, this is not to minimise the impact on pilots in terms of financial well-being and changes to contracts and financial instability, but that these issues are now on the table. They are being established as human factors issues. Next slide, please. So there's many resources, as Paul um, mentioned previously. Um, there's a couple of documents there that you can look through. Uh, our own uh, project website that's hosted on the Trinity College website um, has um, ample tools and resources and information around publications that we have. Next slide, please. So at this point, we'd like to thank you uh, for, for your interest um, and bearing with us. Um, and I think we're going to move to the questions and answers session. Thank you, Joan. Um, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Mark. Uh, really, really good informative presentations there. Um, we've got a few minutes left for questions. Um, we um, we might run over by a few minutes. Um, so apologies to the audience just because we've had so many uh, good questions in. Um, so first of all, let's let's get to some questions. So um, this is a question um, to Mark. Uh, it's from Tony Flint and he says, could you give an example, please, of what you consider appropriate monitoring to be to achieve your green traffic light status? Okay, good question. Um, one of the key things that I would consider to be appropriate would be that the monitoring uh, what we call so we can in uh, put in cockpit monitoring technology, not dissimilar to you. You could get in in a, an expensive car, making sure you're not dropping asleep. That I would argue is too intrusive. We're dealing with professionals. Um, through the technology that Joan was describing, it's possible to give the individual professional a view of their status, their own well-being status, by monitoring um, and relying. Mark, um, Mark, you're dropping, you're dropping out. Have you got your webcam on? Perhaps uh, turn that off. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, one of the monitoring approaches could well be to uh, use the kind of technology that Joan just outlined, the smartphone technology, which is being used in other sectors and other industries to allow people to monitor their own status and to rely on their professionalism um, to alert the necessary authorities if they see that they are having a problem that they cannot manage um, with the resources they have to hand. Um, you know, my own approach would be to prefer that rather than some kind of top-down monitoring approach. Put the responsibility in the hands of the professionals, give them the, the monitoring tools and the support tools that they need and rely on them to be able to take the responsibility to uh, come forward when they need assistance. Um, and that, so that would be my preferred approach for doing this. Okay, thanks, Mark. And now we've got a question for all of you. Um, so this is from Alan Bamford, and he's asked, at the moment we have a perfect storm of huge uncertainty and pressures on pilots and the likely use of sickness as a redundancy selection criteria. Just as pilots are starting to become more open about mental health, they're likely to reduce reporting again. How do we maintain a safe operation in these times? Be good to get your views on that. Okay. Uh, Jane, would you like to go first? 
Yes, I mean, I think um, the question is very pertinent. Um, one of the core challenges is that, you know, coming into this is that a pilot's license is dependent on their, their fitness uh, for work. So it's dependent on their overall well-being. And we know that there pre-COVID there were challenges and with COVID there is increased pressure on pilots. Um, and we expect, and it would be, it is normal that there are, you know, some level of suffering. The question is, how severe is the suffering, and where is the pilot in terms of those scenarios? And um, we really want to advocate for a preventative approach and to support pilots and to support disclosure. And I think this really, I mean, I think that we. It, you, just looking at professionalism probably isn't enough. The system needs to be set up to protect pilots and in so doing to protect the traveling public and to protect other stakeholders. And there is a both a moral and a business case for this. Doing this is, is not very straightforward because at one point you, you there's a paradox there. You want someone to put up their hand and say, I'm not doing well and being open to being assessed and uh, an honest and conversation about this. But the consequences of this may or may not go well if someone is, is in fact, you know, in, in a crisis mode. And even assessing what is normal right now is pretty difficult. And this is, will be difficult for even for very expert trained aeromedical examiners because the landscape has changed so profoundly. And some level, I mean, if you've lost your job, if you have a family um, and you're socially isolated, you know, you, you aren't going to be doing so well. So um, how do we assess uh, pilots? And, we, and one of the things we'd say, you need to assess resilience and assess coping and support pilots in that and work with them. Um, and this will require a change in mindset. Um, so changing a safety management system is one thing, changing a mindset and a culture and a way of doing things and changing the power dimensions and work contracts and rules which exist between pilots, you know, their airlines and also the regulator because the regulator indeed must be brought into this. Um, Paul, any comments there yourself? Yeah, just to build on what Joan was saying there, uh, a lot of what we about this morning is strategies, strategies that pilots themselves can use to take ownership of their own health. But unfortunately, culture eats strategy for breakfast and culture comes from the top. And I think in the same way as we've worked as an industry over the last decade or so to implement and introduce just culture into aviation, we are going to have to introduce a well-being culture at some stage. And I think the regulators are going to have to step up to the plate and mandate that in the same way as they're mandating just culture. Because without the, a well-being culture there, it's limited in what pilots can do. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Mark, um, we've got a, another question for you, um, which is from Paul Dickens. Is there likely to be a deferment from EASA to implementing psychological assessment? Um, oh, well, thank you, Paul. Good question. Um, I, I'm not in a position to speak to that. Um, I mean, for those of you who don't know Paul, um, he's a, an aviation psychologist, clinical aviation psychologist. Um, Deferment of psychological assessment is in the, is in the hands of the regulator. Um, so, as far as I am aware, the current dates uh, for clients in uh, August of 2023 are still We would have to speak to uh, the Authority and or EASA. Uh, to find out if there is a deferment at the moment, we cannot presume that there is. So we need to uh, work with the regulations as written. I don't have a bit of sight. Paul has made available a, a, a document he's written called Clear for Takeoff, I believe, which looks at the key things um, the cognitive, emotional, um, uh, psychological, and physical and social constraints that people will face going back to work. And they do relate to the question. Uh, knowing the kind of issues people are likely to be facing when they go back to work could well be the basis of um, a consideration for what is uh, an acceptable um, standard for people to return to work. Um, so um, I know Paul's making that document available freely. Uh, that could well feed into the discussion about effectively what is the minimum acceptable standard 
for somebody to return to work after um, isolation due to coronavirus. Uh, beyond that, I'm afraid we would have to refer to the regulators for any policy changes or decisions. Okay, thanks, Mark. Sorry, Sorry Keely, if, if I could just add on to what Mark was saying there, uh, I think it's very important to acknowledge that coronavirus is not just a biological virus, it's a psychological contagion. And the recommendations that IASA had that were due to come into place this summer, I believe that they are needed now more than ever. We have thousands and thousands of pilots who are sitting at home now, many of whom have used adaptive coping techniques, healthy behaviors over the last number of years to manage their mental health. And many of those now no longer have those resources available to them. Not, no one of us is gonna come out of this pandemic the same person that we were beforehand. Some of us are gonna come out a, be a better version of ourselves. However, we're not all going to. We are not all in the same boat. We are all in the same storm. However, some of us are on cruise liners in first class, whereas others are barely hanging onto a life raft, drowning. So we don't know what issues are gonna be brought back into cockpits in three months time, six months time, 12 months time, whenever we start flying again. We do not know what issues, what psychological issues those pilots are gonna develop in the meantime. So now more than ever, we need peer support. We possibly need some form of assessment before pilots get back into airplanes and start flying again. And we also need the uh, intoxicant testing. God only knows what some pilots are doing now that they haven't been doing up until now because of the fear of annual medicals and having to report for duty. A lot of those barriers to maladaptive coping techniques are gone at the moment and the adaptive coping techniques are not there. So we need support now more than ever. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, so we've run over by a few minutes. Um, so apologies for that. Um, and uh, just looking to close up now. So a reminder, um, a question came through actually about the date of our conference. So it's been rescheduled to the 27th of April in 2021. We hope to see you there live, um, hopefully and in person. Um, Please also keep in touch with us um, through our website um, and keep up to date with um, announcements on the programme there, but also other upcoming webinars and events. Uh, there's also recordings um, of videos and podcasts on there as well, and you connect with, connect with us through social media. The channels are just listed um, there on the screen. Um, I want to take the opportunity to thank our speakers. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Paul, um, for your presentations and your time today. We really appreciate it. Um, and I want to thank um, everyone for joining us today. Um, and I'm going to close the webinar now and wish you a very good day. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.